Welcome back to In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, and today we have a very exciting bonus episode. By now, you'll probably already know that I'm an avid audiobook fan. I love the way that audiobooks blend the worlds of literature and performance, and I don't think they're talked about enough in their own right. So today, I'm really excited to be talking to the best-selling thriller author, Ruth Ware. Ruth is an international number one bestseller. Her thrillers, In a Dark, Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, The Lying Game, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, The Turn of the Key, and One by One, have appeared on bestseller lists around the world, including The Sunday Times and The New York Times. Her books have been optioned for both film and TV, and she has published in more than 40 languages. Ruth lives near Brighton with her family. Hi, Ruth. I am such a fan of your novels, and I'm just so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a podcast addict, so it's very nice to be doing one. Oh, great. Well, it's always nice to have someone who really appreciates the form. Um, So this podcast really comes at storytelling in the audio format. Um, And so we're going to be weaving that into the chat, um, especially as I experienced nearly all of your novels as audiobooks. Um, But first, I'd just, I'd love to dig into the writing. Um, You're a prolific author of psychological thrillers. Um, And what is it that draws you to that genre? I don't know. There's a bunch of answers. Um... The funny thing was I didn't start out writing psychological thrillers. I'd written all the way through my teens, all the way through my 20s, and I wrote in virtually every conceivable genre apart from crime and thrillers. And it was only when a friend said to me, she's also a thriller addict, and she said that she'd never read a thriller set on a hen night. And I suddenly realised neither had I, and also that that was a book I really wanted to read, but it didn't exist, and that made me think, this is a book that I have to write. And I was sitting on the bus on the way home and the characters were literally kind of walking on into my head. I've never had a book that plotted itself so quickly before Mm. or since. Um, And so in that sense, kind of crime and thrillers almost chose me in a way. But Mm. I think the reason that I keep coming back to it as a genre is because for me it's the perfect kind of combination of head and heart you know Mm. a really good crime novel has a brilliant puzzle at the heart of it and a kind of battle of wits between the reader and the writer as to you know are you going to pick up on the clues are you going to solve the mystery are you going to figure out what's going on Mm. but a psychological thriller also has an emotional journey at the heart of it it's someone going through a kind of a seismic experience that's going to change them as a person so you get both sides of that coin you get the kind of the 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 brilliant sort of cerebral puzzle aspect but you also get the emotional heart of the story one of the reasons I like to listen uh, to thrillers um, specifically is I often listen to audiobooks when I run and there is something about listening to a thriller as you're running that really kind of, you know, gets uh, my heart up. Um, and I'm always just riveted. Um, and so let's talk about your your audiobook experiences as a listener and then as an author so you can start way back when you first started listening to them and just tell me about uh, your experience of that and then we can talk about how they apply to thrillers well I've always loved listening to audiobooks I used to listen to them a lot as a child back in the days when they came on cassette tapes that mm-hmm. you know you had to I, I remember um I guess I must have been driving up to university or something but it was a long drive and I'd got um I think it was a Jilly Cooper out of the library on right. audiobook and it came in this huge selection of about sort of 16 tapes and they'd all been put <laughs> back in the wrong order and you know every now and again one of them would get stuck in the car stereo <laughs> and you'd have to wind it back in and everything but you know as a child I used to fall asleep in bed listening to PG Woodhouse mm. and you know, Three Men in a Boat and just the sound of someone kind of talking you to sleep is such a comforting thing I think as a child and as an adult you Mm. know it's a lovely thing to fall asleep with someone painting pictures in your mind and as I grew older obviously you know stopped being cassettes started being cds but I sort of carried on listening um but audiobooks were really expensive to buy for a really long time especially unabridged ones um and that I think kind of stopped me from 
exploring the genre as much as I might have done. Um, but now, of course, you know, you can get unabridged books on streamed. Um, yeah. You know, you can purchase them for streaming. You don't have to carry around 16 cassettes in your pocket. You put it all <laughs> on your phone, which has just revolutionized it. And I'd been listening to more audiobooks because of that for a few years. Um, and then with the pandemic, suddenly mm. my kids were off school. I was homeschooling. I had no time to myself. So my work got kind of, my writing got sort of pushed into all the corners where I would normally have been reading. Mm. And my reading just sort of disappeared into sort of five minutes before bedtime, before <laughs> I kind of fell asleep. And what, you know, I won't say what saved me because that sounds like it was a sort of, you know, personal crisis, which it wasn't really. But the kind of the, the hidden benefit to all of this was that I rediscovered audiobooks in a big way because, mm. you know, they really are something that you can listen to while you're driving to the grocery store or, you know, cooking dinner or doing the thousand and one other things that you have to fit into your working day. Right. And you can multitask because you could be reading a book while you're cooking spaghetti bolognese. And it's absolutely brilliant. So no, no moment of the day now needs to be without some form of reading or writing, which is basically my perfect existence. <laughs> yeah, same. I, I really genuinely had to question whether or not I was OK with silence and if I was OK being on my own because I was like, oh, I just listen to podcasts and audiobooks all day. <laughs> same. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have a sense of why thrillers work so well in audio? Like I said, it is definitely one of my preferred genres for listening in audio. Um, but yeah, do you have a sense of that? Well, it's interesting because actually I would say thrillers are one of the genres that I listen to least mm. in audio. And that's not uh, it's not because I don't think they don't work, but I think largely it's because I get sent an awful lot of proofs um, in sure. advance of publication. <laughs> um, and so typically I've, I've read quite a lot of the things that I want to pick up by the time they come around. Okay. And the one thing which would completely revolutionise my life and would allow me to blurb so many more books is if publishers were able to make the audio version available sooner, because typically it's the thing that gets done right at the end. Yeah. Um, so it normally, you know it's normally not available even for the author to hear until right at the very last minute. Mm -hmm. But I would love it so much if publishers were able to provide advanced reading copies as advanced listening copies, but yeah. I, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Um, so no, th thrillers are actually one of the things that I listen to less. I listen to an awful lot of nonfiction mm. um, on audio, um, but I think thrillers do work well and I've recently listened to a couple of thrillers on audio. I listened to um, Harlan Coben's new book, Win, on audio, Ooh, which worked brilliant. really, really well. And I think perhaps part of it is that they typically have a really strong first-person narrator. Yeah. Um, so you can really get into that sort of, it's almost like a personal relationship with the narrator. You know, they often have a very strong voice and a very strong personality that works well in audio. And also they've just got that kind of just one more chapter format down, which is what you want with audio. You know, it's that kind of, oh, I'll just listen to you yeah. know, 10 more minutes sort of thing, which really keeps your attention focused. Because I think the thing with audio books that's different from paper books is that with paper books, if your attention wanders, you tend to just put the book down and pick mm. up another time. But with audio books, or for me anyway, because I'm often doing it along the same time as something else, I can suddenly look up and find out that, you know, 20 minutes has passed and I haven't really been paying attention and I have no clue what's going on. <laughs> and of course, with, with a thriller or a whodunit, that can be critical because you could have missed a clue. So it kind right. of forces you to keep really focused and really pay attention. Yeah, I think there's such an immediacy with audiobooks that just really works Um for, for me in keeping my attention sort of that limited ability to control the experience um it, you know you have to go and find your phone to turn it pause it or something whereas turning the page is completely within your in your control and it feels so intimate with that story happening in your ear so like for me when I'm listening to thrillers or like horror or suspense like if the performer gasps or is alarmed in any way I also experience that in a way that I don't think I necessarily do when I'm reading um so I think it kind of plays that middle ground for me between sort of the reading experience and then the watching experience and yeah it's very 
yeah, it's very... interesting because I think it can go two ways you mm. know in some ways in some ways when you're reading a book you're completely immersed into that yeah. world and so it has the ability to get under the skin in a way that I don't think audio sometimes does for me mm-hmm. but in yeah. another way as you say a really good performer can just ch- change your experience to be from something that's mildly spooky to something completely terrifying and one of the things that I get the most tweets about with my audio books is um my last book but one the turn of the key mm-hmm. um is a sort of reimagining of Henry James's the turn of the screw so it's a a nanny alone in a house with a bunch of small children and you know she's sort of not sure whether the house is not quite haunted because she's quite a skeptical person but you know there's stuff going Mm -hmm. on that she doesn't understand and there's this one passage where she's alone at night and she's hearing what she thinks is somebody walking around in the attic above her room and the book just (laughs) says creak creak and obviously however Imogen managed it she just completely scared the you know whatever people because I get so many tweets from people saying Imogen Church going creak creak or stay with me until the end of my days (laughs) so yeah she nailed it (laughs) yeah I think I mean Imogen is so skilled um and and I've got so many things to say about her uh performance so we'll get on to your audiobooks now um so Various authors have different involvement. Some are really involved. Some are not involved at all in their audiobook production. Um, what about you? How are you involved? Um, I am not super involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't select Imogen. My publisher did. Um, I'm super happy that they did because yeah, I think she does an move. amazing <laughs> job. Yeah. Um, and actually, she's read all of my audiobooks. So I think for a lot of my readers now, she's become sort of synonymous with a Ruth Ware book you know mm-hmm, it, right. it's not read by Imogen it doesn't count kind of thing <laughs> um but no I didn't I I didn't I didn't audition her I was sent a clip of her reading just to be able to say I love this or I hate this and I right. thought it was great so that was fine they powered on um I don't really get involved with the production side at all um apart from Imogen does sometimes contact me with questions you know to say what's this character's accent or you know how should this be pronounced or some of my names are slightly odd you can't necessarily figure them out from the page right um and once or twice I've contacted her um I can't give specifics without spoiling the plots but there's a few moments where things have to be read in a certain way or that's because the beauty with print is that you can fool the reader in a way that you can't in a visual medium and to a certain extent you can't in an audible audio medium Mm -hmm. um so there's a few points where I've had to say could you read this in a certain way because it has to be ambiguous and if you read it in this way it's going to be very obvious what's going on if you read it in this other way I think we'll fool the listener and she's you know she's always really good about incorporating all of that feedback so see that's really great I think some when you mentioned that you you know you weren't involved at all um I thought that kind of meant awesome I've approved the the clip great let's go but actually having that author's uh, input into the storytelling and into that moment where you're like right this could be the real clincher is just such a an insight that's such a luxury for um for a narrator for a performer to kind of you know have that conversation and so it really does that that impact uh, that would have impacted the audio significantly so there you go you do have you you are involved no, I guess I guess I just meant I'm not there sitting in the booth going you know give it a bit more emotion in the journal <laughs> you know dial it down a bit I don't want to go to 11 yet I'm not hands-on but yeah. no I definitely I do have the opportunity to give notes and say you know this is how this should go or it tends to be very small specific things but I think particularly with thrillers you know you are very often trying to pull the wool over the reader's eyes Absolutely. in a very specific way and sometimes even just a word or an inflection can tip the reader to what's going on and it can be really important to to just keep that ambiguity going yeah absolutely do do you listen to your own audiobooks um typically no I usually listen to just a tiny bit just to check that it's you know and it it always is Imogen always does a really great job but it just kind of interests me sometimes to know how she's interpreted certain characters and what she thinks they sound like Mm. um 
but I don't like reading my own books. I don't, I obviously I have to read them for, (laughs) uh, you know, public events and stuff like that, but I wouldn't choose to sit down and read them like just for an evening chilling out because, you know, it's done it's water under the bridge you can't change these things and you always look at them and think oh you know maybe I wouldn't have done that quite the way I did and and somehow just hearing that in audio is just even worse because (laughs) always always when you hear stuff it's more obvious than when you see it written down um so no I don't I don't go back and, and listen to them I do know I have author friends who listen to theirs can you say cover to cover with audio? I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and I very much respect that, but I I couldn't do it. I would spend my whole time grinding my teeth and wishing I'd change things or thinking, oh, I don't know, that's how I would have delivered that line, even when, yeah. you know, it's perfectly fine the way the narrator has done it. Yeah, you're certainly not the first author I've spoken to that feels like that. Um, lots of people, I mean, I think writers so often they're their own worst critic um lots of people listening to this will be nodding along furiously um and and so yeah absolutely seeing it amplified like that um I can understand how it could be a little bit uncomfortable maybe I think just a strange experience as well I mean I haven't had any of my books um adapted for the screen yet although they've all been picked up um and I imagine it must be a similar thing, you know, seeing someone else's interpretations of your characters and sort of thinking, well, that's not how I saw them. But, it, you know, if it works, it works. You just have to let go. Yeah. And I think so the the, the role of a narrator is so, um, so important, especially when there's someone who has been given um, the whole of an author's body of work um, and I think so Imogen narrating all of your novels um, is for me just such an interesting uh, element because it seems like it's obviously she does the characters so incredibly well and really embodies each book but it really feels like it's a connection more to your writing style um, and your voice as a writer because I listened I found your uh, your body of work sort of after one by one and so I went back and listened to all of them and then I suddenly thought oh my goodness this is the same person or wait is it the same character is it a series I'm not sure and then I completely forgot about all of my questions because she went straight in um, and I love how you said that she feels synonymous with your writing and your fans your fans think that but Imogen will also come to your books with a whole host of her fans so it's really interesting in a way that I don't know it appears in other sort of mediums as much but like narrators really have their own following as well oh Um, absolutely I get so many people contacting me and saying oh I discovered your book because I listened to Imogen narrating Sarah Hillary or Erin Kelly or Mm. any of the many psychological thriller writers that she also does and I followed Imogen because you know Audible and and many other platforms have a thing where you can click on and say you know what else has this person narrated and yeah I just think that's such a joy and actually it's one of the nice things about having a professional narrator rather than a celebrity narrator because you know a celebrity narrator obviously brings their own fans as well in a different way Mm -hmm. um but they won't have that kind of that necessarily have that body of work behind them that people get to trust them as a good narrator and know that, you know, anything so-and-so's narrating must be done well. Absolutely. And I mean, Imogen is just so, so good at picking up on your characters brilliantly. And before we talk about her voice, I'd love to to sort of dig into how you start crafting these characters that are so, so well realised. And when I'm reading them, when I'm listening to them, I really, really relate. I really feel as a woman in my early 30s, I really see these people as people I could imagine just on the street. And and I think it doesn't have the sort of... um, fictionalized glamour that some some characters do have uh, in thrillers and so I'd love to hear how you how you start crafting these characters I honestly wish I knew (laughs) every book I have to kind of do it all over again and you know you sort of and the more books you've done it you know in a way the harder it gets because you're sort of thinking oh is this character a bit too similar to so and so Uh, Mm -hmm. you know are they a bit of an archetype but then you do meet people who are archetypes in real life that you can Mm -hmm. kind of just slot into a into a type um 
so every time it's difficult and every time you have to try and bring something new to each character and a large part for me of, of writing a book particularly a book in first person which most of mine are mm-hmm. is finding that character's voice and finding their particular way of telling the story and sort of mining their insecurities a little bit which are all individual to them but no I don't I don't have a kind of some writers have a sort of particular method for creating characters or they ask themselves particular questions or you know there's stuff that they have to know that will sort of give them the key to the character I don't have a systematic way of doing it I sort of approach it a bit like trying to get to know anyone that you would meet in real life you know Mm. you ask them questions about themselves you let them talk you let them tell you who they are what their preoccupations are and like most people in real life you know usually there's a side of themselves that they're presenting to the world and then there's an interior Mm. self that is sometimes at odds with the impression that they're trying to project um and that's something that I'm always very interested in as a writer particularly for my main characters is exploring that disconnect between the inner self and the the outer um impression um I think that's you know most of us are putting on a front in a way and I don't mean that in a sort of you know yeah Tom Ripley kind of man <laughs> style way but we all have stuff that we're insecure about that we don't want other people to know that we're insecure about and that's that's interesting you know anything that makes people uncomfortable gives a little bit of friction to their character makes them interesting um but what's intriguing is you know quite often you don't find out important stuff about characters until quite a long way into the book Mm. just as with friends you know you could have known them for a surprisingly long time and then they'll tell you something about their formative years that will both shock you and at the same time make you think wow this explains an awful lot about the person you are and that happens with fictional characters as well so I very much see it as as like a friend and when I finish the book it is very much like a friend that you've lost touch with and you know Mm -hmm. I think about them occasionally and wonder how they're getting along and you know if they really were a friend I'd drop them a whatsapp saying how are you doing you know I was thinking about you today but obviously in fiction you can't do that and and do they do your characters appear sort of after your first draft fully formed or do you kind of go back and chisel away at them um i would say my first drafts are 90% of what gets published so That's i'm gorgeous. not someone <laughs> Well, it has its pros and cons in that I don't, I feel I can't move on until things are right. Like Mm -hmm. I can't write a chapter and just think this is a, this is a first draft. I'll come back to it. That's not how I work. I feel like it needs to be good first time round. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it can take a while for the book to get written. Um, (laughs) But it does mean that when it's finished, it's usually touch with 90% of the way there. I don't tend to do big changes um but there is always stuff that I find out about them as I'm going along and sometimes that requires going back and just tweaking little bits at the beginning of the narrative to just I don't know just kind of highlight who they are and Mm. sort of underline that a little bit more and then the final edit is usually just a process of just sharpening everything up a little bit it's sort of a bit like when you put an Instagram filter on something you know it's the same photo but it just looks a little bit more the way you meant it to you know it looks a bit warmer or it looks a bit chillier or it looks a bit sharper Mm. Um, and it's it's that process of just sort of bringing everything into focus and making it into the book that you were intending all along but didn't quite nail first time around. I think you you write so sort of viscerally. I, I read somewhere that you described yourself as as a wordy writer. They come out quite long, um, but it never feels like that. I always feel so deeply immersed in the world that you create. Um, and and I'd love to know how you create your landscapes. You always have very visually. Um, immersive landscapes and how how, and they always seem very specific it doesn't feel like just some town in some place it's always like a very specific type of town with very specific weather and landscape and and how do you go about building that 
yeah I don't I honestly don't know in the sense of I don't know why I write like that and I very much enjoy like Shari Le Pena's books not mm-hmm. all of them but quite a lot of them are her genius is that you you feel like it could have happened in your neighborhood you know mm. they're these very generic sort of small towns um with regular people in where and I, th- I think that's what gives the books their power in a way because you read them and you think this could have happened around the corner from me mm. you know this feels very familiar territory um and that's not the kind of book I write I you're right I tend to go to very specific places um I have a very visual imagination so when mm. I write I literally see the the scenes kind of unfolding in my mind's eye and in a way it's almost like a process of sort of dictation it's a bit like kind of writing down what you see um and I can't I can't imagine a scene until I've imagined the background to the scene so that's often the first part of thinking about a book is thinking about where would it be set what would it look like what's my character's house like how is it laid out how do the rooms relate to each other I spend much more time thinking about the landscape and the physical setting of the book than I do about my characters, weirdly Mm. enough, especially my main character. Um, I think mostly because as human beings, we don't look at ourselves much. You know, we spend much more time looking at our surroundings than we do. We think about ourselves, but we don't Mm. see ourselves. And because my book's the first person, when the character is describing what she sees, it's always external. So you don't, get the you know the sort of a frown flickered across her lovely face kind of you know style of writing it's all about what what my characters are seeing um so yeah so so that that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about at the beginning thinking about the atmosphere the setting the sort of small details of what's going to bring this place alive um but why I do it that way I don't know I think it's partly just because you spend a year writing a book by and Mm. large and it might as well be a year somewhere exciting you know if I'm going to spend a year (laughs) in a place I want it to be somewhere really cool and certainly at the moment we're not you know we're not traveling anywhere physically so if I can travel in my imagination then so much the better. (laughs) Yeah I think you you really do transport um transport your reader and your listener um I myself um I'm not a hugely visual writer which is ridiculous considering that I like photography is one of my sort of hobbies that I've I've always had um but yeah not very visual I find it really difficult I always find myself saying well I'm gonna plot this first draft in my old hometown because I genuinely can't think of anything else and I just want the plot out and then inevitably I I probably won't end up going back and changing the setting but you what you do so well is you for me you you write the place like it's a character in in and of itself and and I think it is in my mm. books usually and and very often the place is intrinsic to the plot you know which is one by one is a really good example of that it's a book that couldn't have taken place anywhere other than an isolated ski chalet in the mountains because that is the cornerstone of the plot is the fact that there's an avalanche and the characters get cut off so yeah often often the plot arises either out of the setting or certainly hand in hand with the setting and you take these settings and regardless of where we are you make it so dark like um is it the death of um miss westaway mrs westaway yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the brighton pier in my mind brighton pier has always been like you know fairly light and charming and delightful um and yet all i could imagine was gray and misty and yeah you really really take these uh, places and make them the darkest sort of scariest versions of themselves I well it's funny I I do and I think one of the reasons why is it comes back to that kind of instant internal external sort of dissonance thing that we were talking about with characters and I think there's a version of that with physical locations as well where very often the places that are the most picturesque and you know anyone who's been to Brighton Pier on a sunny day it's absolutely beautiful Mm. it's you know this idyllic Victorian pier when the sea is blue and the sun is out it's just the most lovely place to be but it's 
in the winter and I live mm. on the south coast so I you know I'm here year round it's incredibly bleak you know the wind <laughs> cuts off the sea like a knife it scours your face everything's dark there's no tourists the lights are off the kind of the seaweed is dripping from the rotting planks of the pier you know mm -hmm. it really does feel like a place you could dump a body um, <laughs> and that kind of filters through all of my books that very often the settings are these places that should be idyllic you know a gorgeous mm -hmm. smart house in the Scottish Highlands or a ski lodge in the Alps or you know a beautiful seaside town uh, in the Lion Game it, you know all of these places should be wonderful but they've all got a sinister side which they're not trying to hide because places you yeah. know are what we impose onto them but yes it's it's interesting exploring that sort of uh that split personality between the the kind of the the face that places show to the tourists and the fate the underbelly that they kind of keep concealed yeah and I think going going back to Imogen I'd, I'd like to dig into sort of the qualities of her voice and what she brings to your audiobooks um I think she reflects that darkness so, so well. Um, and I'd love you to talk about sort of her voice specifically and how you think the, the qualities it has that really kind of works with your, your writing. I mean, she's just a really good actress. She's really mm. good at conveying people's emotions and their inner turmoil. And she's very good at doing that kind of layered thing where the character is sort of saying one thing on the surface, but you can tell there's something going on underneath the surface. She's brilliant at mm. getting that over in, in voice form. Um, the other thing which she's wonderful at, which I'm always very, very impressed by, is she's really good at accents. And I'm appalling Amazing. at accents. <laughs> and my books are set in quite far flung places. You know, there's um, books set in Cornwall or in Scotland. And when I do public readings, I have to deliberately avoid reading any passages <laughs> that have Scottish people in them because my Scottish <laughs> accent is so bad. I would be drummed off the stage. So yeah, I have a very specific selection of readings from those books that doesn't require me to do any regional accents. Um, but uh, yeah, Imogen pulls it off brilliantly. Although she, do, she does always say uh, someone... Uh, tweeted her the other day saying you know are you going to be narrating Ruth's next book and she said well I don't know you know it could be narrated by a 90 year old um, Russian man who's moved to Glasgow in his <laughs> youth and you know <laughs> it could be a voice I just can't do I was thinking well that would be an interesting challenge right a voice that Imogen just can't do but no, I don't think I'll be going there <laughs> it's interesting because she's so sort of synonymous with your writing um, and I know you don't listen to your audiobooks but you do know her voice D does it ever play into your mind when you're writing what the audiobook might sound like uh no no only when I'm finished and then yeah. sometimes specific concerns will crop up in the kind of stuff that we were talking about earlier you know mm. where a certain line has to be read in a certain way otherwise it's going to give too much information yeah. but that only ever happens at the end when I sort of sit down and think how is this going to sound when I read my own books to myself I hear them in my voice not Imogen's um, yeah and is that something you do you read out loud when you're in your writing process um I very rarely do read it out loud most writers will tell you that it's an essential thing to do which it probably is but I <laughs> I, I don't uh you, you've done pretty well so far without <laughs> it <laughs> um I read so I do sometimes read dialogue out loud if I'm having trouble with it because mm. um I don't know it just physically saying the words brings something to it when you can tell if a line's not quite right but when I read through my books I hear it in my head as as if I'm reading it aloud um which is almost as good uh and yeah it's uh, I hear it in my voice not in not in Imogen's so <laughs> that makes total sense um because obviously she as a narrator will be used to one reacting to what she is given um and I think just going back to her voice she she does sound totally effortless and totally spontaneous um as if she's experiencing it rather than reading it and that experience really feels like you're in that character's mind um especially with the f like the first person it just feels as though she's letting you in um which I love so much and I think the other thing I I am just so drawn to with her voice is is that 
the emotions just feel very real. There's no moment when I'm listening to, to Imogen narrate your books where I feel like she's performing it. Um, she never in, does that kind of actorly thing where you think, oh, you know, they're over-egging this a bit. Or, yeah, yeah, she sounds, it sounds very authentic. And you don't feel like you're being manipulated. Um, you just feel you like... You should have her on the podcast, actually, because she's got, she's talked a bit about this um, in the past, but she's saying on Twitter that she doesn't, I think this is right, I hope I'm not misquoting her here, because it's a, it's a while since... Um, the conversation but I'm pretty sure she said she doesn't read ahead so when you were saying about it sounds like she's experiencing the it sounds very fresh and sort of not rehearsed I think that's because she doesn't she, you know she reads it as she's experiencing it wow. very often so yeah oh my gosh that is that's truly amazing it's just another way that she's she's great I've probably completely misquoted her now and she'll <laughs> tell you something totally different but I'm pretty sure it is not rehearsed 90% I mean obviously there must be bits where she you know fluffs a line and goes back and does it yeah. again or whatever but for the most part I think she doesn't spoiler herself in a weird way <laughs> that is so interesting I, well, I'll have to get her on the podcast I'll have to dig into that um but yeah like the way she experiences the emotions for me um just makes me feel sort of worried for her which is just such a skill to make me kind of feel like I have some way of influencing it where well, I can't at all but yeah I really feel feel that and I think so much so um in your your newest novel uh, one by one um Let's let's have the quick pitch. I know you gave us a sneak peek uh, earlier on, but let's let's have a little chat about one by one, and then we can get onto sort of the the audio of that as well. Well, it's quite a hard novel to sum up in one line. <laughs> so most of my earlier books are like murder on a cruise or murder on a hen night, um, and to that extent, one by one is murder in the French Alps, but mm. um, it, it's a bit more complicated setup than some of them. So. My main, I have two narrators and one of them, the first one that you meet is a chalet girl in this super luxe chalet in the French Alps in this very expensive resort called Saint-Antoine. And she is about to host a group of tech um, kind of, well, would-be billionaires. They're not quite there yet uh, for a week of um, kind of corporate uh, meetings and so on. And the other character, um, Liz, is the former secretary of this tech company and because of the way the company was set up she has this tiny two percent shareholding that she got way back when and this means that she has ended up being in a position of having buyout so the company's been offered a buyout and she has the casting vote in whether they should accept the buyout so all the directors have gathered at the resort to try and you know figure out whether or not they should accept this offer and Liz is the one who has ended up able to say yes or no so she's under huge pressure from both sides and just as she's sort of trying to grapple with this problem one of the directors goes missing in the snow and it later becomes apparent that she's probably been murdered um, and just as they're all sort of processing this there's an avalanche so <laughs> just to add insult to injury so the book is told in alternate chapters from Erin the chalet girl and Liz the former PA of uh, of this tech company as they sort of try and figure out what's going on and there's chapters when Liz knows more than Erin and there's chapters where Erin knows more than Liz and it's kind of it's a back and forth between the two of them. I mean I think one of the just truly masterful things about uh, this uh, book is that uh, the least scary thing is the avalanche. Um, <laughs> you really amp up the tension so fabulously. And I think what you just said there with the um, one narrator knowing more than the other and kind of going between that, it just creates this delightful moment of like pathetic fallacy when the, the audience knows more um, then the characters in some places and then the characters know more than the audience and most of the time it's just a really um, just delightful play on tension um, and I'd love to talk about the the two different points of view of this character um, but first I remember listening to something that or reading something I can't remember that said that you're dealt with a sort of 
relationships and the many different relationships um that we experience as adults um sisters friends mothers um and what we have here is a very very intense look at work life um which i think is so deeply relevant right this moment because everyone's work lives because of covid are kind of shifting our relationships and what it means to be in the office or on the clock um, and i'd love to know what it was that inspired you to write this particular story well it it really did come down to that you know i had sort of i was sitting there brainstorming and thinking you know what should i write about and you always want to do something a little bit different you know mm. you don't want to be writing the same book every single time and i had you know i had looked at friends at school friends at families at you know toxic relationships in the home mm-hmm. virtually every sort of you know, toxic setup that you could have. But the one relationship that I had not looked at was people's relationship with their colleagues, which, you know, for most of us is a really pivotal relationship because, Mm. you know, pre-pandemic, obviously it's a little bit different now. These were the people that we spent most of our days with. And, you know, you spend eight hours a day in an office with people. And if they're great colleagues, then that makes a huge difference to your quality of life. And if they're toxic, it can destroy you, you know, spending that much time with people who wish you harm in one way or another. And so I guess when I, I wrote this book, part of it was an exploration of that relationship. And, and I very deliberately tried to show both sides of it. So Erin, has a co-worker Danny who is a chef at the chalet oh I love Danny oh I love Danny Danny's my favorite (laughs) character in that book they have a really good working relationship you know they've got each other's backs they're respectful of each other Mm. they have professional lines that they're not going to stray over with each other you know they give each other space when they need it but they're there when they need each other and the relationships at Snoop which is the tech company in the book are very different and much less safe in Mm. many many ways you know there's a number of lines that are crossed in the book that emphatically should not have been and there's you know I read a lot of biographies of you know startups and CEOs Mm. and stuff when I was researching the book and what fascinated me was the fact that the qualities you need to to start up a, a tech company you know you need a brilliant idea you need access to funding you need mm. connections you need charm you need charisma you need a certain amount of just kind of bullheaded oomph to just sort of drive it forward those are totally different from the qualities that you need to run a big company and these guys very usually was blokes would overnight find themselves responsible for 200 people without Mm -hmm. having the slightest you know training in that or you know any idea of how to safeguard these people how to create a nurturing environment and you know the good ones recognized that and filled that skill gap either by getting training or getting people in place who did have those skills but I was interested in writing a book about what would happen if a company was left in the hands of someone who had no interest in making their company Mm. a safe place for the employees to work and that's really what's happened at Snoop the the two CEOs out of all of their priorities none of them are their employees really um that's where they've ended up (laughs) I think you really yeah you highlight that so well um and recently I uh, I listened to the audiobook of Uncanny Valley by Anna Wiener Anna I'd have to double check that um have you read it no I haven't but it sounds like it might be my complete bailiwick in terms of areas of obsession it is so good um and I've literally just listened to it and I listened to one by one um a while ago um and hearing you say that just made me go oh my goodness yes that is it feels so similar and it gives such a backdrop that thinking about the characters and the setup that you created it just has that look into the uncanny valley of what it's like to be a responsible uh, employer overnight um and i think that yeah you hit the nail on the head that is yeah it, you really do feel sort of liz's discomfort all the way through this um it's so there 
in her in her POV chapters. I think one of the things that I really loved about this um, were, were the two different points of view. Um, and I'm not sure if this was, I was thinking this while I was listening to it, um, but, on, but when I was thinking about it after the fact, I could have sworn that there were two different narrators on this book. And I was preparing to talk to you about, you know, the new narrator that you had and how it played off with Imogen. And then I looked back as I was doing my research and I was like, no, all Imogen. She did both of these. Um, and that is just, I, I, I don't know if I thought that in the moment, but I I definitely had that impression afterwards. And that was just so one down to how she brilliantly voiced it, but also how you wrote those characters so distinct in their points of view and, and how I, I get the... the um, sort of being able to separate two novels, um, but when you were writing these two two characters, were there specific traits that you wanted in order to kind of really get those distinct points of view? Well, so one of the reasons why I'd never written a dual point of view novel before was because of all of those concerns, <laughs> and I really hate it when you read a book with several points of view and you can't work out which character is talking mm. and you end up having to you know flick back to the beginning of the cha chapter because you're thinking you know is this Isabel or is this Chloe or you know yeah. whatever it might be um and so I'd always thought I don't you know I only want to do this if I can really nail getting the the characters voices distinct mm. um and so I kept sort of, I kept shying away from it and shying away from it. And then I thought, no, this, you know, this is the book where I have to tackle it. And so, yes, that was a big, it took quite a long time to get the two voices right. Erin's mm. voice came quickly and easily, partly because she was the first one that I wrote. Her, the first chapter is from her point of view. Mm. And so, well, the first chapter I wrote, actually, I think possibly it might open with Liz's in the final draft. Um mm which meant that Liz sort of had to react to hers. Um, and actually, when I started writing this, talking about final drafts being 90% similar to the, the first one, this is a book where actually that's not the case because I wrote 30% okay. of the book just from Erin's point of view. And it was only when I got to that point, I thought something's not working, it's not right. Mm -hmm. And I realised it was because... I was telling it from the wrong point of view and I was telling it from the point of view of someone outside the story who didn't know what was going on. But yeah. I also knew that I didn't want to lose Erin's point of view, partly because I'd got very attached to her as a character by that point. So I thought, okay, I have to go in and choose second narrator. And that became Liz. Um, but yeah, the challenge was differentiating Liz's voice from Erin's and mm -hmm. I did. I mean, a lot of it is just to do with their characters. Liz is a much more paranoid, uncomfortable person than Erin. Mm. She's in a very difficult professional situation and she's constantly dwelling on that. And her confidence has had a lot of knocks in a way that Erin's hasn't. So that kind of plays out through her sort of inner narrative. But she just talks differently from Erin yeah. you know she's much more hesitant she's she speaks in much shorter sentences Erin's very chatty so her sentences kind of run on and there's lots of sort of clauses and she kind of goes back and sort mm. of whereas Erin or Liz rather is much more guarded she's constantly sort of second guessing herself so her sentences are much shorter she doesn't contract her words as much uh, mm. because she's just a more sort of stiffer more formal person and so that's reflected in her prose um, and so yeah it was something that I had to put a huge amount of conscious work into so when I listened to Imogen's version of the two characters it was just so pleasing to me that she had obviously put as much professional sort of work into her side of differentiating the mm. two voices and that was brilliant yeah, and and I, I one of the things I like to do um, is read a book after I've listened to it. If it's one that I've really loved, um, I always end up buying it, um, uh, as as a lot of book nerds will do. Um, and uh, yeah, just you can really see it the rhythms on the page as well when you're looking at it. You can really 
like physically see the the shortness and the uh, or the run on sentences, which is just really really fascinating um, in just a writer's craft way. Um, but yeah, what well, I was talking to a narrator yesterday, and she was saying there's only so much a narrator can do if the character's not there, and then you start um, you have to start making decisions. That maybe aren't on the page if the right if the character's not fully crafted and if they're not fully sort of rounded. Um, and I was reading Liz's chapters because I was just super interested, and she's just so nervous on the page as well. She's just so and uncomfortable. That word uncomfortable really really sums it up for me. It, it was it was definitely the biggest challenge, or but yeah, probably one of the biggest challenges of writing that book. And uh, yeah, I was so grateful to Imogen for nailing it because it would have been you know as a writer it would have been frustrating oh, to yeah. to spend all that time trying to differentiate them and then to have them sound or you know over audio very similar but Imogen did a great job of, of separating them and, and making them both come alive as completely separate but completely real characters well yeah I thought it was two different narrators entirely don't know what's going on there. well there you go ultimate <laughs> compliment right um well this has just been so pleasurable um where should listeners go if they want to find out more about you about your books uh yeah give us where you are well i i have a website imaginatively called ruthware.com uh it took me a very long time to come up with that one, as you can imagine <laughs> um i'm also on twitter instagram and facebook as ruthware writer on all places um but the place where i do most of my kind of chatting and interacting is twitter so yeah if people have a question or you know just want to come and say hi that's where you can most often find me thank you so much for coming on today this has been truly great oh well thank you for having me it's been such a pleasure and the time just flew by (laughs) thank you so much to ruth for taking the time to sit down and chat and thank you as always to teddy merricks my one-man production team for the music and logos and thank you of course to you for listening You could probably tell, but I loved my chat with Ruth. I'm a huge, huge fan. So please do rate and review the podcast and share it on social media so that I can keep having these awesome conversations with such talented creators and producers. If there is an audiobook you'd love to hear me discuss, or you're an author with an audiobook coming out, get in touch. There are contact details on my website at englishgirlinnewyork.org. I also hang around on Instagram under at alishasbooks.n.bobs. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fort Productions. See you all next time. <laughs>